Well, we're looking at Titus, and I, I, a big event happened this week. I like sports a lot. Uh, the Celtics were in town. Anybody notice that or see that? Hear anything about it? Yeah, who are they? <laughs> we're, we're the farm system for all the Boston teams. Anyway, um, but I thought it was interesting because I'm speaking on leadership, and I really wanted to talk about what a good leader is. And uh, Celtics coach Doc Rivers made this comment is in the paper, what a difference a player makes. He's also talking about a difference a year makes because they had one of the most losing seasons last year and now they're having one of the most winning seasons. He makes this comment. He says the only reason this team has worked is because they're good people. I thought that's really interesting. You know, you can have all the skills and talents in the world. In fact, you see it in a lot of different teams, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, corporate world, church. They have a lot of talented and skilled people. But if they're not good people who know how to work well together and put their interests aside to do the kind of thing that only they can do when they all work together, you don't have these kind of results. And so specifically, Dr. Rivers says on Garnett's leadership, I've often coached against Garnett and wondered from afar if all that loyalty and intensity, that elaborate game ritual that he goes through, was too good to be genuine. Well, now he knows different since he's coaching him. Rivers made this comment. He said, the best quality, though, is that Garnett owns up to his mistakes, because stars rarely do. When Garnett turns around during a game film session and says, man, that's my fault, then what's rookie Glenn Davis going to do? Everyone falls in line. And that makes your job a treat. Garnett's a leader to his team, his fans, and the city comes around to want to follow him. And we've experienced that. I titled this message, How to Be a Good Leader. I could have appropriately titled it, maybe perhaps better, Becoming the Person Others Want to Follow. What does that look like? What makes people want to follow a leader? Why do some people reluctantly comply with one leader while at the same time with another they just passionately get behind them and involved? What separates good leaders from just average to poor leaders? Have you thought about that? I don't want you to get off the hook either here thinking, oh, yeah, that's the Garnets of the world and that's the Jack Welches of the world. And, you know, the, the people who specifically are are kind of gifted and called to be leaders. I, I want to broaden that for a second and say every one of you are a leader to some degree or another somewhere in some place. In your work world, you may not be the. CEO or COO or CFO, you may be just a leader of a team or a part of a team, but in some way you lead. Whether you're at school, uh, some of you uh, who uh, as students are, are athletes on teams or maybe you're teachers in your leading or you're a coach. In fact, one of the greatest training grounds for leadership in which every person who is a parent knows if you're willing to accept responsibilities, that you're a leader. You've been given an opportunity for a period of time in your life to actually um, lead and develop and to see children grow up. And someday the hope of being uh, of a parent is to see your child kind of be set free, fly away, as we just sung in a sense, and, and do life on their own in a way that's mature and adult. Well, I want to share with you a few insights. The first two insights in this chapter of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, because we're going to work through this letter in these weeks to come. There's two implied lessons of leadership, and then there's one very direct, in-your-face lesson. And the first one that is just implied there is that good leaders are developed. 
In class or in college during my graduate level studies, a professor asked us as students to write um, a paper, a term paper, on are good leaders made or born? The whole idea is it nature or nurture, that whole concept. And the reality is, as I studied and looked at that, and as, as studies also show, there is a sense that there are some born leaders. There are some people who just, by nature, step out and lead in the areas that they are gifted in. For instance, uh, Fisher was playing chess at 16 at six years of age, I mean. And uh, Mozart wrote his first symphony at age eight. I mean, some people just stand out. I think Jack Welsh um, fired his first direct reports at age nine. Um, I kid in the first service that uh, Pastor Paul Bergman was preaching at five. Um, and he shook his head no. But, you know, but no matter if you're a naturally great leader, you know, it's kind of who you are. Great natural leadership potential or not, God's word, even scientific studies, specifically show that leadership is something that can be developed and should be developed and is something that each and every person here can grow in, whether a parent or whether you work or at school or in politics, wherever it may be. Good leaders and what makes the good in good leaders is something that you can nurture and develop. They're matured through mentoring individuals. In fact, organizations that really do well are the kind of organizations that make some kind of investment in their, um, in their people that they're hiring to develop leadership skills in them. In fact, uh, good corporations that thrive in difficult times, even in markets like this, are, um, you know, you can thrive in, in good markets. But when it comes to tough times, the ones that usually thrive are the ones that have invested in some way to develop leaders in that organization. Well, if you look at the word of God, Jesus took this so seriously. In fact, he took 12 what I call B-squad JV players. You know those disciples? They lived up in Galilee, and Galilee at that time was considered the hill country. Maybe like from the hills of Kentucky or something like that. He took these Galileans, and he took these JV B-squad players, and he unleashed their potential to do what? Transform the world. Jesus spent three years. He, He spoke, and he taught, and he healed. And he brought others around him, but he specifically poured his life into 12. And those 12 poured their life into others. Well, this letter of Titus implied in this, when you look at this letter, is Paul who has developed Titus. He has mentored Titus. He has brought Titus on in his life in order to see Titus develop as a leader. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he says that Titus, he says, my true son in our common faith. To Titus, this is my son, someone who has Paul wasn't the father, but spiritually, in a sense, he was investing into this person, Titus, who was a young man to become something someday like a father as well to other leaders. So before we look any further in this whole idea of developing the leader, let's look at who is Titus. And you need to get a little bit of understanding who Titus is. He was possibly a convert of Paul's. In fact, it was in Antioch that they think maybe that Titus came into um, a knowledge and understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Um, I'm going to put that up on the screen so you can kind of see that there. He says in verse 19, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. What had happened after Jesus had um, resurrected and then the Pentecost, the Spirit of God came upon these people. 
they all began to see God do amazing work. And at a certain point, God said to them, you know, your purpose was not just to be here in Jerusalem, but it was to go to Samaria and to the other part, other part, most ends of the world. And so God brought a persecution that spread out these leaders. And that's what you see here. It was at that time they went and they began to tell the message only to the Jews. But some of them, verse 20, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch, which is the northern part of Palestine or that land of Israel. And they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Well, this was a new thing. They weren't just telling Jews now. They were actually telling people who were, quote, Gentiles, specifically Greeks. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas, realizing this was bigger than what he could do, remembering there was a man named Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, who had this Damascus Road experience, came to Christ. He was in Jerusalem teaching, and finally he was creating such a stir that the people who were not Christians and followers of Jesus, the Jews, began to persecute, and they couldn't handle it anymore. So they said, Paul, who was doing a lot of this out of his own flesh, he needed to grow up spiritually. He needed to develop his own leadership skills. They, they sent Paul away to a place called Tarsus. It says many people believe for 14 years. So if you've ever been put in a position where all of a sudden God sets you aside, he does that purposely sometimes in our life to develop within us the things that, that he wants to do. To, to grow in us that, that are lacking. And that was happening with Paul. So he says, then Paul, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And soon after, Paul got this taste of, of leading Gentiles to Christ. He had been trying to do it with the Jews, and Jews were... You know, they were just so resistant. So he started to lead Gentiles to Christ and he saw God's hand of blessing on his life. So Paul, at a certain point, wants to make sure that he's not doing something wrong. So he takes Titus and in a sense, Titus is exhibit A to the disciples in Jerusalem. He wants to be, bring Titus and say, here is an example of the work of God in a life of a person who's not a Jew. So he goes down there. And if you look at Galatians chapter two, verse one, again, it'll be up on the screen. Fourteen years later, Paul writes, that, that time frame when he was away, Barnabas goes gets him. I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, which is a, a, some kind of a spiritual encounter that he had with God. And he set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers, brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make our, and to try and make us slaves against to the law, basically. And we did not give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Simply, just a little caveat. There will be, in this church and in any church, people who want you to legalistically fall in line with what they think is right so that you will be accepted by what you do so you have an in crowd and an out crowd and you can judge them by the things they do. Paul said, not for one moment will I give in to that. There is one law that guides us through the Holy Spirit in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's love. And love motivates us. And sometimes love will look different on one occasion than it does on another. So don't get into that. And so he comes there and he brings Titus, exhibit A, and he says, look at how God is working. 
This is the beginning of his mentoring, and he begins to enter into this relationship. And this person, I think, is a spiritual son because he came to Christ through this relationship that he had with, with Paul. And Titus is mentioned only a few other times in Scripture, in both in First and Second Corinthians, because he now becomes a ministry companion with Paul. Paul leads him to Christ, sees in him some abilities, and then begins to kind of nurture him and walk him along. Titus is evidently a young man, but Paul also saw in him the ability to do some difficult things. He sent Titus at one point to Corinth, which was a a place where the church was a mess. There were divisions, spiritual immaturity, immorality, all kinds of other issues were taking place in that city and in that church, in those churches within that city. That he he sent Titus there, and he and he had Titus deal with the people, and Titus had a great response to his leadership. So so here is Paul investing in the life of Titus seeing Titus go out and do something. And now when we get to Titus's letter here, Paul is once again, if you look at verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out. Paul is sending out this person who he's developing and nurturing and working with. Let me just answer another question real quickly. Why is Titus in Crete? I just was reading in verse 5. The reason he's there is to straighten out what was left unfinished and to appoint elders in every town, leaders in every town, as I directed you. That was why he was there. Paul had at some point probably visited this island, and we don't even know when, but we do know that when he left, he heard word that things weren't going well, so he sent Titus, this person he's been nurturing. Where is Crete? Let me just give you a quick kind of, just because as we get in this letter, you want to know a little bit of where it is. So if we just have a close-up, there's a close-up slide of Crete. Sir? Yeah. So that's Crete. And then for you to get a little perspective, let's pan back a second and, and see exactly where it's at. It's just, you know, by Big Island, Minnetonka Beach, and Wyzetta. Just, it's not too far. Uh, okay. I guess that isn't Crete. But, you know, I have to let you know that Crete and Big Island have some similar, you know, what goes on there was going on in Crete. I mean, it was, a, it was one of those kind of environments. So let's go maybe to the other one. I think that's the right one. Okay. It's just uh, southeast of Greece, about 160 miles long, about 6 to 35 miles wide in places. Its terrain is mountainous. Uh, today, half of it is actually a part of Turkey and half of it is part of Greece. But in that day, um, in Rome had invaded about 60-some years before Christ, and so they were a Roman province, but they were made up of Greek people. Um, and there were churches probably established there prior to Paul's arrival. In fact, Jews had probably settled in Crete when there was a dispersion years ago, before even Christ came, when there was that great dispersion of Jews. About 400 years before that, 500 years before that, there were Jews who went to that island. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 11, and again, I'll just put this up there so you don't have to turn to it. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, allowed them to. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And what I think is interesting here is God's plan of, of um, spreading his truth and his love is often different than, you know, sometimes we sit down and try and figure it out here. God kept saying one thing to the disciples. Stay in the upper room, keep praying there, and at some point power will come on you. That's your, that's your task. And, and, and they're kind of going, well, you know, you trained us, we're ready to go. I, you know, sometimes God just says, wait. 
actively seek me and, and actively get to know me, but wait, and at a point, God comes along and does something they could never do. Who would have thought all these people would be here and God would have all these people staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Now you're kind of going, how do they know they're Galileans? See, again, up in Galilee, it was kind of in the hill country, and they had a de- definite accent. It would be as if you had a whole bunch of people from the deep south here. You would really, you would, even if they were speaking another language, you'd hear a southern accent, right? You'd hear those kind of, that's what they heard. Aren't they Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and they start sharing all these different ones. But if you get down to about the end of verse 10, it says, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, and Cretans were there. So that church was established, but what happened is those people went back after that experience, but they didn't know much about church. They just knew that they had God in them in a way they'd never had before. The Spirit of God was upon them, but there was a whole lot of things they needed to learn and they needed to be developed in. And so Paul goes there and he begins to get things going, but he couldn't stay long. So I believe he had to leave. And as he leaves, he hears some things from others that things are not going well there. The people are, are not living what it means to, to walk and follow after Jesus. They just don't have enough understanding. And so... Paul sends Titus, and he says, I'm sending you back there to get things straightened out, to help these people. And he sends back a person who he's trained and developed. And the point is simply this. We need to, as people, whether in the church, and as a church we need to really think about this, But where you're at in business and where you're at in the school and where you're at in your home, you need to be the kind of people who are willing to mentor and invest your life in another person. And some of you are doing that. And some of you may be just challenged to do that in a way you've never thought of before. You see, godly leaders just don't appear out of nowhere. They're trained, whether in a home by godly parents or whether through a church Someone chooses to take a person under their wing and develop them. Seminary and Bible courses, colleges and universities, they can supply information, but seldom is it that investment of a life upon a life. And that's what we're called to do. We have like one-on-one programs here. We have people who meet. Good corporate centers have those kind of places where they build teams, where they have people investing in one another's lives. That's What God calls people to do to help another person become established and develop their potential. And I think it's one of the greatest tasks upon the church. How do adults mentor adults? How do our senior hires, or even college age to senior high, and senior hires to junior hires, and junior hires or student in in the middle school down to elementary age? How do we do that? And we need to. Godly leaders and good leaders are developed, whether a parent, a business leader, school, whatever. And there's not only a vertical relationship, and I want you to think about this. Not only are you pouring your life into someone, but let me ask you this. Is there anyone in your life who has been, is pouring their life into you? There's all kinds of ways this can happen, folks. I mean, I know in, in my life there's been people who have come alongside me, who are in ministry, who have helped me. There's been ways, and some of the greatest growth in my own life is that I have chosen to pay someone to mentor me. It's called therapy. Um, 
you laugh, but there's, there are, there are ways to invite people into your life, into your marriage, into the ways that you live, that they can get alongside you and they can help you grow. And I want to share with you, don't be too proud to enter into those kind of ways that God wants to mentor you. So are you having someone invest in your life from the top down or maybe even from a, from a side way? Good leaders are not only have a vertical relation with other good leaders, but they also have what I call horizontal leadership. And here's the second implied message, and I won't go too much into this, and we'll get into the, the, the third, what I call in-your-face um, lesson in here. Good leaders surround themselves with good leaders. It's just a principle of life, and it's kind of what Paul is saying here. He's the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was un, left unfinished in a point Commission, anoint, kind of what we are doing here, set apart for tasks, leaders, elders in every town. In fact, the word he uses here is elder. An elder um, in the church became to be one of those kind of words that were defined. Eventually, elder meant a certain thing. But what it meant in that culture in that day, it meant mature and experienced and seasoned. And so in a sense, he's saying, kind of look for some of these people who are mature, experienced, and seasoned. He'll explain what that looks like in a moment. But surround yourself with those kind of people. Put those kind of people, as you lead there for this period of time, Titus, around you in different places. And draw them together from time to time so that you not only are in a position where I'm mentoring you and now you're mentoring other people, but you're surrounding yourself with good leaders. I mean, it's just a principle of life. I share with you just a story from 9-11, and it's, uh, it's a story that Rudy Giuliani tells, so I'm not endorsing him, because in a moment when we get into the next lesson, I will not endorse him. For, anyway, so just so people don't send me all kinds of letters or talk to me afterwards and saying. But there is, in 9-11, he writes, looking back, I believe that the skill I developed better than any other was surrounding myself with great people. The group in place on September 11 proved to be exceptionally strong, especially since so much of what we had to do in the light of the disaster had no precedent. The axiom about good teamwork, making each member of a team better, really proved true. I can barely describe what it meant to, be, to, to me to know that I could turn something over to someone and, that, and to know that it would get done without having to hector and micromanage. I can tell you that one of the greatest things as a person who leads and, and has had that opportunity, and you know this as well, any parent knows this as well, that when you give, a, you know, you say, would you take over this, and whether you give a direct assignment or you just say, here's the thing, and you let them figure it out, one of the greatest things to know is you can hand it off, and what happens? It gets done. You don't have to turn their crank and get them motivated to do it. You don't have to sit down with them and, and, and kind of hector them to get it done. You basically give it to them and you know they're going to get it done. It doesn't mean you don't have reaction and responsibility of relationship in that process. But one of the great things that we need to do here as a body is to raise up leaders and surround ourselves with good leaders. And by good leaders, I'm saying everyone can do that. Because in a moment, we'll talk about what is the chief characteristic of a good leader. So... I like what Rudy says here. He says, on the first night, for example, we weren't sure how to get all the equipment into the city. Additionally, some of the roads we would normally have used were completely destroyed, complicating matters. Abandoned cars were blocking everything. One of his chief aides that he worked with, Rudy Washington, he says, organized the entire system for getting the construction equipment in and out. So when I began reassuring New Yorkers that the city would recover and prosper, if we showed resolve, he kept saying, well, we, we'll, we'll prosper if we show resolve. It was more than just hollow bravado, he says. 
People could see within the hours of the attack we were already accomplishing things. And they felt that they too could be strong and determined because of what they saw going on by good leaders. And each member of the staff saw their teammates acting bravely. And guess what happened in turn? They acted bravely. And that kind of response just doesn't happen. It happens because there are leaders who are investing in other leaders and they put around themselves, not just in vertical relations, but horizontal relationship leaders who they can trust, who will get the job done. Because these leaders have what Paul says is the most important characteristic in them. And that's what he spends the rest of these verses talking about. Character. The key for good leaders, the kind of leaders that people follow, the kind of Kevin Garnett's who are willing to say, hey, I've made that mistake and, and aren't insecure trying to cover up and be defensive, but they're willing to be honest and authentic and to, and, to, and to also put the time and effort to develop their skills and do all those kind of things. Those kind of people are people of character, plain and simple. And that's why I said when you come back to it again, you know, um, leaders surround themselves with good leaders. And, and Giuliani had one of those kind of moments where his skills and his gifts of bringing those people around him were great. But then you can look at all kinds of leaders, and I don't need to name names, but there's a lot of leaders that say it doesn't matter what you do in private. Your character doesn't matter. But the reality is this. Character will matter. You can get away with skills and gifts, and some leaders are able to do it, and they lead well. So I'm not saying there aren't leaders, because we have plenty of presidents who have led well, who have, you know, in-the-closet kind of bad lives. But sometimes those kind of things come to the surface. And I'll just give an example of a, of a leader, I think, who has incredible skills and gifts, who has got the ability to do lots and get lots done and did, in one sense, if you look at Clinton. But what happened? We spent a whole term doing what? On something with regard to character. I could point to all the different leaders, so I'm not trying in any way to endorse one or the other. What I'm saying is what matters is character. And I'm not saying because I say it. I'm saying because if you read the Word of God, it basically says this. As an elder, he must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. He starts by saying it's in the home. If you want to see a good leader, you need to look into the home. You need to look into the relationships he's closest with. And I have to tell you, this is an area that God has been working greatly on my life. I have, if there's an area that I wish I could do over again, it's that it's as a pastor so often, and you probably aren't far behind, some of you. I hope I'm not the only one up here doing this. But anyway, it's real easy to get your leadership and all the things you're doing out here, and you can neglect what is most important in here. And good leadership always takes place within, when he's talking about husband of, uh, husband of one wife, let's get to where I'm at here in my notes. Um, must be blameless, husband of, of one wife. He's merely talking about this sense of, 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 of loyalty. He, he's talking about this sense of, of caring for and loving and, and appreciating and doing all those things that you need to do in your home with your wife. And then he talks about his children. He, he's, he just makes it really plain. If you want to see a good leader, you'll see that it shows up in their own home. And I'm not saying there aren't stresses and there aren't rebellious children and there aren't those things that go on. So those things happen and we realize that for season. But what's really interesting when you look at this passage of scripture, I think what he's saying is the overall image of the person's household in the local community is one that people go, there's integrity there. If there are specific family problems that cause a decided lack of respect and, and a lack of confidence in this person on the part of both Christians and non-Christians, it seems quite obvious, I think Paul is saying, that it would be better for this person not to serve as a spiritual leader, but rather to concentrate their efforts on their home and family. 
And so he basically turns it first and he says, what's going on in your home? What's going on privately? And he uses this word blameless a couple times. I think it's important. He uses it with regard to the private area of a person's life. But if you go on, he also he says it right away again. He says this, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, now he's moving down into the public area, he must be what? Blameless. He's basically saying, if you want the most important thing about a person who is going to lead you, look for integrity. Look for integrity. And so he goes on and he shares this about the family. And he begins with the family because that's where a person's character needs to show up first. And here's what he he wants us to to know is that it's where we're most known and where we most reveal ourselves is going to be where? Where no one's looking. So that's why he starts there. Who you are at home in private does matter, says Paul, when it comes to public service and leadership. Secondly, Paul moves to the past, the family, to the general areas of man's integrity and character. And he begins with a bunch of negative qualities. If you look at verse 7, Paul lists those things that will cause a bad reputation. What causes a person to have the kind of character that others look at and go, "Eh, I don't know, it's a little shady. He lists these qualities, and these should not be present in a person that you call into leadership. Let me just share with you these qualities. First, again, blameless, this idea of integrity throughout the person. But the first is not overbearing. Literally, not self-willed. A person who arrogantly wants his own way and disregards the needs of others. Whether you're a, a father in a home, or a mother in a home, or you're in your school classroom, or you're in your business, or you're here in the church, specifically in the church, he says, the person who always has to be right and others are always wrong, who is their own authority, you don't want them to leave. That makes sense? Not quick-tempered, he says. This is the person who flies off the handle, loses their cool. They easily strike out another person in anger. It's basically the quick-tempered person who can't handle frustrations and other things, and, and their insecurity is of such a level that everything's an attack. They say, you be careful of putting that person in leadership. Not given to drunkenness. You kind of go, well, yeah, that's kind of an obvious one. Well, not in that culture. Again, remember I'm talking about Crete. Crete was a lot like Big Island. So um, he, he's talking about people that were not, you know, hadn't developed some of these moral qualities. And so he says drunkenness. Specifically, he's saying this. Don't put a person who is addicted to having to avoid the pain and reality in their life and needs to somehow have some other substance to bring a sense of pleasure in so that they can avoid it, whether it be drunkenness, sexual addiction, um, drug addiction, you, any, any kind of codependent kind of addiction. You don't, you don't want that person leading because leaders need to do what? They need to often step into the pain, go through the pain with people so that they can face the reality to bring them where? To where you want them to go. So then he goes on, he says they're not violent, and he's kind of progressing in his thoughts, or he moves from quick-tempered to giving away to control of alcohol to being violent, the idea that a person is a striker, they strike out either emotionally or verbally or physically. And he goes on, not pursuing dishonest gain, the impure motives. I don't think I need to explain that any further than people who want to get something for their leading. Paul in verse 8 then continues, and he gives now these good qualities and characteristics What do you find in a person who has integrity, who has character? 
And he lists just a few of these things. He says they must be hospitable. When we think about that, we think, oh, yeah, they're really good at bringing people into their home and and letting them stay overnight. It's not really fully what he's saying. He's saying it's the kind of person that that isn't racist or afraid of other people or or the kind of person that divides himself up. But they're open. Their their hearts are open and and willing to bring in people who are different, who, who think differently. They're open to those around them. Who loves what is good. They're zealous about that. Who's self-controlled. And control their mind and emotions so they can act rationally and discreetly. They're upright, holy, and disciplined. These kind of trio of, of what I call right relationships. Upright meaning they're right before others. They're holy in the sense of their piety and their rightness in, in the sense that they're directed towards God and seeking to, to have Him lead them. They're disciplined in relationship to themselves. So, so both up and out and within is what he says. And then he says, and he gives a sentence of this, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it, especially in that day. They needed to be very clear. I mean, they didn't walk around with Bibles in their hands. They were people that had to know God's word well enough so that they could be able to to live it and understand it and sense when it was going astray. And these are the good qualities of a spiritual leader, a good leader, a good leader, whether it be in the church or anywhere, is a leader of a person who has character. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't list and say, you know, look for someone who's who's like a Jack Welch, you know, leading corporation. He's the CEO of one of the places in Crete. Look for that guy. He doesn't say, you know, look for the guy who's making, you know, he's just incredible in sales and he's making a ton of money, gets, you know, good quarterly reimbursement. You know, he doesn't look for that. Don't look for the guy who has the most charisma. You know, the kind of guy who can get up and he can speak and he does real well at at getting a whole lot of people excited about things. That's not the guy. Look for men and women who have integrity and want to grow in character. And I don't think he's saying here that they're all there. Because, again, remember... I think Crete was a lot like Big Island. He was, you know, when I my first ministry, I have to tell you, I was in a church and, and there were very few who had what I would call new uh, personal understanding of, 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 of a relationship with Jesus. I think many of them knew God uh, and had, had an openness and trust, but they didn't understand the knowledge of what that all meant. So my first deacon board um, was made up of, I think most everybody smoked. And I mean, that was a qualification to get on it. No. I just said, because that's, that was my church that I first was a part of. It was, you know, it was a great experience, a great opportunity to be a part of it. And with regard to smoking, I'm not going to, if you're smoking, but oh shoot, I shouldn't be, just, you'll get to heaven faster. Um, so what I want to just share with you is this. What he's saying is simply, Titus, I want you to look for people that you can invest your life in who are responsive to you, who want to develop with integrity and character in their life. Because you've experienced this for me. So I just want to ask you as we close, where are you in this whole walk? You maybe haven't thought of yourself as a leader, but you know what? Before God, you are. He said every person on this earth, when he, you know, with this creation mandate, he said, I've made you as one who rules over this earth. So everyone here, in some sense, has leadership. So, you know, are you in this place where you're maybe 
saying, I need to be mentored. And you may be as a, as a couple here going through some difficulty in your marriage, and, and God is saying, one way I want to mentor you is to get someone to come in and counsel and be with you. That's a way of being mentored. It may be that spiritually you're kind of going, boy, I come here and I kind of hide because I just don't know a lot about God's word. And, and you're just, you know, and, and so that shame causes you to, to, you know, and fear causes you to retract. And I'm going to tell you, you know, the best thing to do in the world is, is you know, give a call and, 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 and talk to myself or someone who you trust and just say, you know, I want to know more. I'd really like to understand what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, I've heard of some men in this church who've, who've taken a year or two and, and they've actually poured themselves into some high school kids that aren't their own kids. Isn't that cool? Maybe God's calling you to do that. Maybe God's calling you to have someone mentor you in your life. I gotta, and let me say this to, to, to moms right now. Because sometimes when we do this stuff, you get real guilt trips about, boy, I just, I should be mentoring more people. You've got kids. Now is the time to pour your heart into them. I'm not saying if God calls you to, you know, he can call you to do other things. There's people, everyone God works with differently. But I want to set you free and not feel like, boy, if I don't get in this program at church here, in this program, I want to tell you, it might be far better for you to reduce your involvement in order to be fully involved in your kids in ways that make a difference. Don't let that voice put shame and guilt into you. No one's called to be a supermodel. And dads, it's real easy. Because we get a lot of, of uh, strokes by building and, and, and doing the things out here in our work world and to really invest there that we forget how important it is that we invest in our spouses and our children. Because it goes back to that lesson. Character is first here, behind doors, private, home. And good character will express itself eventually in good public ways. I, I'll say it over and over again. God had to teach me personally that well-doing comes out of well-being. Who you become as you spend time with God and with Christ and, and with others who, who also are seeking to grow, as you become that, it will flow out of you. So, I just want to encourage you. To think for a moment and say, God, in all these things, where am I at? I'm going to ask you to bow your head, and I'm just going to lead you through a short prayer. And as I do that, if the worship team wants to come forward, just with your head bowed for a moment if you want to, if you just want to keep your eyes open, that's fine. Just examine your heart and say, the first thing, Jesus, that is in, is in my face according to what this word has to say is my character. And I want to share with you one of the greatest ways to develop in your character is to open your heart to God. Jesus Christ personally wants to be your mentor. And some of you here this morning may have never surrendered or opened your heart to a relationship where you say, Jesus, I don't get this. I don't understand it, but I know I'm not perfect. I know I've blown it. I, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. But. I hear that you really love me, and, and would you enter my heart right now and, and be my mentor for life? If God's speaking to even just one of you, and you're saying, I want that, just open your heart right now and say, Jesus, be my mentor, come into my heart and forgive me for the things I've done wrong and teach me how to grow in your character. And there may be some who are saying, God, I've been given so much, it's time now for me to give back. 
Would you this week and maybe in the months to come, it doesn't have to be in a hurry, but just with an open heart say, God, is there a person out there that I'm supposed to be spending time with? Lord, we just open our hearts to you and say this all in your name. Jesus, amen.